It's March, 1949. 22-year-old Hiroshi Yamachi pauses outside the Nintendo headquarters in Kyoto, the city that was Japan's imperial capital for more than a thousand years. Nintendo's stone and brick building stands out in a city filled with wooden structures. Yamachi gazes at the unusual building for a while and then strides purposefully through the entrance. He's the new boss of Nintendo, though he doesn't want the job. It's his family's company, and in 1949, it makes handmade playing cards. Yamachi's grandfather, the previous director of the playing card manufacturer, is bedridden with a stroke. Yamachi's father abandoned his family when Yamachi was just five years old. That leaves Yamachi next in line to run the family business. Bound by duty, Yamachi takes the helm. But after taking charge, he quickly parts with tradition. He knows no one wants him there. His relatives are envious, and many Nintendo employees hate the idea of being bossed around by this arrogant, unproven, rich kid with his tailored suits and manicured fingernails. As Yamachi walks through the entrance and into Nintendo's marble Ford reception area, employees give him sideways looks and gossip disdainfully behind his back. One worker whispers, Yamachi knows nothing about business, and another adds, he's bound to fail. Instead of studying hard, Yamachi spent his time at law school flashing his family's cash, dining on steak at fashionable Western restaurants, and indulging his taste for expensive wines and brandies. He's too selfish and lazy to succeed, the workers agree. But every one of them underestimates their new boss, because underneath the pampered rich boy exterior is a man with a will of steel. Yamachi already knows what his first decision will be, and it shocks everyone. He sits down in his office and summons his cousin. He is the only possible challenger as heir to the Nintendo business. Yamachi promptly fires him. He then walks down the halls and tears down the company posters exhorting employees to work hard and be meticulous. In Yamachi's new Nintendo, employees will be creative rather than unthinking drones. Yamachi's stance is clear. Nintendo is his company now, and in his company, he will answer to no one. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. You're listening to Episode 2 in our six-part series on the war between Nintendo and Sony, Man of Steel. In our last episode, set in the 1990s, Yamachi found a way to outmaneuver Sony in a very public and humiliating fashion. But that is still years in the future. For this episode, 
we're going all the way back, before 1900, to the birth of the company. It will shapeshift many times before it becomes recognizable as today's video game powerhouse. Nintendo was already successful in pushing 60 when Yamachi inherited the company. Back in 1889, when Yamachi's great-grandfather started the business, Nintendo was no more than a cramped street stall that sold handmade Japanese playing cards. The stall may have been small, but its choice of location showed that they had a nose for business. Nintendo's home was a sketchy Kyoto neighborhood filled with illegal gambling dens run by Yakuza gangsters. Inside those smoky backstreet dives, people played cards. To prevent players from cheating, fresh decks of cards were used for every game. The gambler's throwaway approach created an insatiable demand for Nintendo's cards. Nintendo was selling thousands of packs a day. The stall was replaced with larger premises. Soon, the cards were made on a mechanical production line and distributed across Japan. By the time Yamachi inherited the company in 1949, Nintendo was Japan's biggest playing card manufacturer. Once he's in charge and has fired his cousin, Yamachi takes on the company's stagnant culture. To create efficiency, he consolidates Nintendo's production facilities and its hundred or so employees into one location. The union responds by calling a walkout. Day after day, angry employees gather outside Nintendo's headquarters. They build a camp and decorate it with banners demanding that Yamachi go. Some workers even go on hunger strike, sitting cross-legged for hours on wooden boxes in the street to signal their determination to get their way. But Yamachi refuses to even negotiate with the union. In newspaper articles, striking workers accuse Yamachi of being an incompetent autocrat, a man too young and rude to run Nintendo effectively. Weeks go by, but eventually Yamachi decides enough is enough. One morning, as the workers gather yet again outside Nintendo's offices, one of Yamachi's assistants emerges from the building. In his hands are a large bunch of letters. He hands the letters out to each one of the striking workers. The workers are shocked by what they find inside. The letters are signed by Yamachi, informing them that they have been fired, effective immediately. The strike is over, and with it, all opposition to Yamachi's iron-fisted rule within Nintendo. While Yamachi may have changed Nintendo's culture, it takes him another 10 years to change the business. Nintendo still makes playing cards, just as it had for 70 years. But that was all about to change, thanks to some cartoon characters. It's 1959, and millions of Japanese families are buying their first television set. The sudden desire to own a TV is simple. In a few weeks' time, the Crown Prince of Japan is getting married, and his wedding will be broadcast live to the nation. For Yamachi, this is incredibly exciting. But that's not because he cares about the wedding. Instead, 
He sees the sudden growth in television ownership as a way to boost sales of Nintendo playing cards through TV advertising. But there's a problem. Playing cards don't make for good TV. Yamachi knows he needs a way to make his company's card decks more exciting. And then the answer hits him. After the Second World War, Japanese children fell in love with Disney characters. Most people chuckle when they see Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, but Yamachi sees dollar signs, or yen, take your pick. And what better way to earn those yen by sticking Disney's famous characters on Nintendo playing cards? So Yamachi gets in touch with the Magic Kingdom, hoping to get the rights to put Mickey and his friends on Nintendo cards. But Disney's wary about licensing its characters. One American executive explains it this way to Yamachi. Our characters are our most valuable assets. We have never even heard of your company. Why should we trust you with our characters? Nintendo is an established company. We have been in business for 70 years, and we pride ourselves on our quality. Now, these talks drag on for months as Yamachi tries to convince Disney that Nintendo really can be trusted. Eventually, Yamachi gets the deal and the big sales he expected, but his encounter with Disney leaves him with more than just that. Experiencing the inner workings of the Magic Kingdom up close fires up Yamachi's ambition. He begins to question Nintendo's singular focus on playing cards. Why can't Nintendo be a world-class company, a company like Disney? Why can't it expand into new lines of business? Yamachi doesn't care what new businesses Nintendo gets involved in. All he cares about is making Nintendo bigger. Whatever business he thinks will prove profitable will do. And so, driven by Yamachi's new hunger for success, Nintendo tries one business venture after another. It founds a taxi service. It manufactures strollers. It assembles cotton candy machines, sells Popeye-branded cup ramen, and produces instant rice. It even opens love hotels where beds are rented by the hour. But nothing seems to stick. By the mid-60s, Nintendo is piling on debt and is no closer to making Yamachi's dreams of global success come true. In fact, after nearly 80 years in business, Nintendo is looking over the abyss. But then, salvation comes from a young, bored worker with an Elvis Presley hairdo. In 1965, Yamachi hires Gunpei Yokoi, a young electrical engineering graduate with a black, slicked-up pompadour. Yokoi's job is to keep Nintendo's playing card production line running. It's easy work. Nintendo's machines are simple beasts, and after checking them each morning, Yokoi retreats to his office. To pass the time, he amuses himself by building gadgets out of spare parts he finds around the factory. Today, Yokoi is in his cramped office, working on his latest project. It's a strange device. It looks like a long scissor jack. As the noise of printing presses seep through the office's wooden walls, he puts his feet on his desk, leans back, and starts tightening the screws that hold it together. 
Yokoi jumps when he hears the knock at the door. As the door opens, he drops his device onto the office's concrete floor. He spins around and sees Yamachi standing there. Yamachi's gaze locks onto the gadget on the floor. What are you doing? Uh, 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 Mr. Yamamachi, I... I, uh, Come with me now to my office and bring that thing with you. Well aware of Yamachi's ruthless streak, Yokoi picks up the gadget and braces himself for his inevitable firing. After entering the office, Yamachi closes the door and turns to Yokoi. What is that? It's a toy, Mr. Yamachi. What does it do? May I show you? Yokoi drops a pencil onto the floor of Yamachi's office and stands up. He positions one end of his gadget over the pencil and then squeezes the handle at the top end. The device stretches out and the far end clamps onto the pencil, allowing Yokoi to lift it from the floor without bending down. Very interesting. Now go turn that thing into a toy we can sell. Nintendo releases Yokoi's invention as the Ultra Hand, and it becomes Japan's must-have toy of 1967. Nintendo sells more than a million. From its success, the company launches a toy business with Yokoi as Nintendo's chief toy designer. Yamachi thinks, at last, he's found a profitable direction for the company. But the toy business is tough. Children are fickle and hits like the Ultra Hand are hard to come by. And every time Nintendo strikes gold, competitors flood the stores with copycat toys. So Yamachi continues his quest to diversify Nintendo. He tries electronic toys. There is the love tester. A couple grasps a metal sensor while holding each other's hands. And a meter displays their love level on a scale from 1 to 100. That turns out to be a flash in the pan. Nintendo sells dollhouses, makes photocopiers for schools, and opens electronic shooting galleries. It's trying just about anything to diversify, to grow. But success remains elusive. By the mid-1970s, Nintendo is barely hanging on, weighed down by the debts from all these failed experiments. Every morning, Yamachi wakes up and wonders if today will be the day Nintendo closes its doors for good. But Yamachi keeps his fears to himself. To his employees, he remains the cold, in control, and intimidating boss he has always been. To his family, he remains the distant and usually absent father, too preoccupied with work to spend any quality time with them. It's 1976. Yamachi is busy in his office reading through the latest budget reports. And the news is grim. But then... The intercom on his desk buzzes. It's Yamachi's secretary. Mr. Yamachi, I have a caller from Mitsubishi Electric for you. What do they want? They would not tell me, Mr. Yamachi. Should I take a message? No. Put them through. The secretary connects the call and Yamachi picks up the phone. This is Mr. Yamachi. Hello, Mr. Yamachi. I am calling you because I have a product that we believe will be of great interest to Nintendo. Could we come and show it to you? Curious, Yamachi agrees to the meeting. But he's not only curious, he's desperate. 
He's tried everything to save his company. As it turns out, this encounter will transform Nintendo's fortunes. Mitsubishi's executives arrive with a prototype of a home video game console. Yamachi eyes it warily as a Mitsubishi representative explains what his company wants. We are looking for a buyer for this device. We designed this home game machine for another company, but that company has since gone bankrupt. Now Yamachi is intrigued. Please continue. Our machine is very advanced. It plays six different bat and ball video games that are built into the device. If people own a color television, they will be able to see the games in color too. Since the development of the device is already done, this would be a low-cost way for Nintendo to enter the video game market. Would you be interested? Yamachi doesn't think highly of video games. In fact, he dislikes their primitive ping-pong action and ugly black-and-white visuals. But he knows that Mitsubishi's offer is just too good to turn down. The next year, Nintendo's Color TV Game 6 console arrives in Japanese stores, supported by a national television advertising campaign. At half the price of rival consoles and with color visuals to boot, the Color TV Game 6 sells fast. Hundreds of thousands sell in months, wiping out Nintendo's debt. And suddenly, Nintendo is at the forefront of Japan's embryonic video game industry. Encouraged, Yamachi bets the house on video games. Nintendo releases more game consoles, all successes, and starts producing coin-operated video games for amusement arcades. To stay ahead of its rivals, Yamachi pressures his employees to come up with novel game ideas. Give me products that no one has seen before, he tells his harassed staff over and over. Eventually, Yokoi comes up with exactly the kind of winning idea Yamachi wants. Pocket-sized video games that double as digital watches. Nintendo calls it the Game and Watch. Soon, Japanese schoolyards and commuter trains are filled with people absorbed in their Game and Watch. Buoyed by Nintendo's success in Japan, Yamachi decides it is now time for Nintendo to seek similar success in America. In late 1980, Nintendo opens a U.S. office in Redmond, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Nintendo enters America as the country is gripped by video game mania. Video games are everywhere. Arcades spring up in towns and cities across the land, gobbling up quarters by the millions. Video games are on magazine covers, in the pop charts, and lurking in dentist waiting rooms. The hottest toy around is the games console made by Atari. It's built by the California company that introduced the world to video games in the early 70s with Pong. Unlike Nintendo's consoles, the Atari doesn't rely on built-in games. Instead, 
Atari owners buy new games sold on cartridges that plug into the machine. Millions of people buy Atari's console, turning the company into a corporate giant with a promotional budget to rival Coca-Cola and McDonald's. To cash in on the Atari-led games boom, all Nintendo needs is a great game to sell to the nation's arcades. Unfortunately, Nintendo doesn't have a very good game. Instead, it has Radar Scope, a Space Invaders knockoff, but that fails to fire up arcade fiends. Don't worry, Yamachi tells his new U.S. team, the next game will be the hit you need. A few weeks later, the game Yamachi promised arrives at Nintendo of America's headquarters in Redmond. Members of Nintendo's U.S. team eagerly use a box knife to cut open the large cardboard box and then pull out the bubble wrap. Their excitement evaporates as soon as they see the tall arcade cabinet inside. After a few moments of silence, one employee says what everyone in the warehouse is thinking. It's called Donkey Kong? What the hell does that mean? What's a Donkey Kong? The team's concerns only deepen when they switch the game on. The hero is a dumpy man in dungarees. The game challenges players to guide this butterball in overalls up a ramshackle construction site and rescue his girlfriend from a giant cartoon ape. There aren't any spaceships, no enemies to shoot, and no explosions. Instead, players hop over barrels rolled down the screen by the giant ape. This thing seems hopeless. The employee who questioned the game's name speaks up again. We're screwed. No one likes cartoon games, and what kid wants a fat man with a mustache? This'll never sell. Well, he couldn't have been more wrong. From the moment it reaches the arcades in 1981, Donkey Kong becomes a phenomenon. Donkey Kong replaces Pac-Man as the game of the moment and makes Mario, its overweight hero, a superstar. Donkey Kong inspires pop singles, spawns a Saturday morning cartoon series, and even gets turned into a breakfast cereal. Armed with the millions made from Donkey Kong's success, Yamachi decides that Nintendo should now take on Atari with a cartridge console of its own. He orders his engineers to create a console that can put Atari's machine to shame. And the result is the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES. In Japan, the NES becomes yet another home run for Nintendo. Within months of its 1983 release, Nintendo can barely keep up with demand from the fast-growing legions of NES owners. With the children of Japan hooked on NES games, Yamachi's next move is obvious. It's time for the NES to cross the Pacific and conquer America. The question is, will NES arrive too late? It's 1984 at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, where the biggest new electronics are unveiled each year. The Nintendo of America team is not having a good time. When they show the Nintendo Entertainment System to U.S. retailers for the first time, well, the feedback is terrible. 
The message is the same every time video games are over. Turns out that while Nintendo was busy making a success of the NES in Japan, much has changed in the US. The video game boom has gone bust. The bubble popped by an oversupply of games. Arcade halls are closing as fast as they once opened. Atari has gone from corporate icon to one of the greatest failures in business history. Retailers discount games heavily just to clear their shelves. Game makers lay off staff and shut down shops. So, when Nintendo proudly rolls into Vegas touting the NES, retail buyers just laugh. They snigger to each other. <laughs> Look at that clueless bunch. Yeah, they don't even know video games are finished. Nintendo of America President Minoru Arakawa doesn't give up. His team redesigns the NES, and a year later, Nintendo returns to the Consumer Electronics Show. But the reaction is the same. Video games are yesterday's news, the retailers tell Nintendo. And for the second year in a row, Arakawa breaks the bad news to Yamachi. Mr. Yamachi, I'm sorry, but America is still not interested in the NES. No, they are wrong. Children aren't bored with video games. They are just bored with bad video games. This is what I want you to do. Take the NES to one American city, one city, and launch it there. Prove these doubters wrong. There was only one place where it made sense to launch. New York City. If the NES could make it there, it could make it anywhere. Armed with a $50 million budget, the sales team works around the clock. They bombard the five boroughs with advertising. They smash through the skepticism of retailers by offering money-back guarantees. They spend hours on their feet in malls demonstrating the NES to passing families. When the Christmas sales figures arrive, they discover New Yorkers bought 50,000 NES consoles. It's less than Nintendo hoped but enough to convince retailers across America to start stocking the NES. Soon, Nintendo's console is selling out across America. By the end of 1986, Nintendo had sold a million NES consoles in the U.S. Yamachi was right. American children were not done with video games. They just wanted better games, and Nintendo has no shortage of those. But there's one Nintendo game in particular that the kids want the most. Super Mario Brothers, the latest adventure of the mustachioed hero from Donkey Kong. Nintendo spent six months perfecting this game, and it shows. Every idea, every moment, every image, and every blast of sound oozes quality. Super Mario Brothers sets a new standard for video games and propels the Nintendo into millions of American homes. By 1989, 100 years on from its formation, Nintendo controls 90% of the video game console market. Nintendo now dictates the game business. Mario! Mario! The 1990 release of Super Mario Bros. 3 only highlights how big Nintendo becomes during this period. The game earns more than half a trillion dollars, even outgrossing Steven Spielberg's movie E.T. Yeah, Mario is bigger than E.T. 
American children might even know him better than Mickey Mouse. In the all-new Super Mario 3, Nintendo. Yamachi's done more than reshape Nintendo in Disney's image. He's built a new Disney. A Disney for the video age. As Nintendo enters its second century, it looks unstoppable. And even a company the size of Sony knows it will take a Herculean effort to topple this business giant. On the next episode, the Sony PlayStation team battles to keep the project alive in the face of enemies within Sony and a games industry loyal to Nintendo. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. This is the second in the series Nintendo vs. Sony. New episodes of Business Wars come out every Tuesday and Thursday. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Simply tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors like ZipRecruiter. You can try ZipRecruiter for free by visiting ZipRecruiter.com slash BW. It's the smartest way to hire. You can also get episodes of Business Wars ad-free before they're released anywhere else by subscribing to Wondery Plus. Just go to Wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. You'll also get exclusive access to other Wondery shows in addition to extra content and exclusive perks. Another way you can support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. And if there are some business war stories you'd like to hear, well, by all means, let us know. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. He is the author of Replay, the History of Video Games. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Produced by Jenny Lauer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our show's executive producer is Marshall Louie, and it was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.